keep the video camera there. I want you all to read these words here. Uh, a conference about the church and for the church. Um, every conference, every Christian conference put on by any ministry, by any parachurch ministry, it's a constant focus of the conferences that we hold at Ligonier Ministries really ought to be conferences for the church. Uh, conferences aren't ultimate. Um, some people sort of live off of conferences as if conferences are the ultimate thing, the ultimate experience. But conferences, parachurch ministry conferences really ought to serve the church, ought to serve the people, God's people, the church, and ought to serve the local church. And I'm so grateful for Nine Marks, so grateful for Dr. Aiken, for this seminary, who is concerned about the church and serving the church. Don't ever make conferences ultimate. Make your worship and your ministry and your service in and through and among your local church ultimate. All of these conferences ought to point to the church. So let us, let us be mindful of that when it comes to conference messages even. Let us let us feed daily, not just on the Lord's Day, but daily upon the sermons and the messages of our faithful pastors. Let us not turn to podcast pastors as our sole pastors, but let us look to the local church and to the daily and weekly ordinary means of grace work of our local pastors and to love them and give them the same honor and respect and attentiveness and service as we would even those who are here among us this week. We come this morning to 1 Peter chapter 5. And uh, before we read, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word. and We come to you in prayer because we need your help. We not only need you every hour, we need you every minute, we need you every second of our lives. Make us wholly dependent on you even now, and may your Holy Spirit help us. Help us, Lord, not only by your Spirit, by illumining your word to us, but help us to really understand your word. May your Spirit take your word and not only impress it upon our minds, but may it, may it go deeply within our hearts and our souls. May we not just come away with big heads of knowledge, but big hearts of compassion and Lives ready to serve and to live as becomes followers of Jesus Christ, walking worthy of the gospel of Christ as we rest in that gospel. Lord, may we come away today and from this conference loving your church more. That means, that means loving people more. That means loving, loving all people more. That means loving the people who love us and like us and even the people who don't love us or like us, the hard people and the easy people. And help us, Lord, to love them as ourselves. And help us, Lord, to love you more with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, even now as we come as disciples of Jesus Christ. And may it all be not for our glory, not so that people might look at us and give us applause, but that they might look at you. And they might see your glory and enjoy you forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 1 Peter chapter 5, and I'll read the entirety of the section from chapter 5, verse 1 through verse 11, though we'll be looking primarily at the first few verses of 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter writes, So I exhort the elders among you, 
as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to your elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, into the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is the holy and authoritative, inerrant and infallible word of God for you, his people. Peter begins by saying, so... Now, some translations have completely omitted that little particle in Greek, and I think unfortunately, because so much of what Peter has been building up to in this epistle, addressing the churches spread around throughout what is today modern-day Turkey, addressing these churches on their persecution, on the fiery trials that they have been under, the suffering that they have experienced. And Paul, Peter has been building up to this, and in the final words, in the final verses of this short letter, he speaks now to elders. Elders are those who, serving in the churches, were the most known, the most identified. The elders were the ones with the targets on their backs. The elders were the ones that were most known in the communities, most known by the officials, and likely the first that would be persecuted, likely the first that would be shot at, likely the first that would have the fiery dart shot at them, not only by our adversary, the accuser, the devil, but also by the world and also by the enemies of Christ and the enemies of the church of Christ. Before and leading up to chapter 5, Peter is dealing with the fiery trials. You can look with me and see there in verses 12 and following of chapter 4, Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Do not be shocked by it. It's similar to what James says, isn't it, in chapter 1 and verses 2 through 4. When trials come upon you, not if. Don't be shocked by them. Don't be surprised by them. You ever notice how in the Christian life we, we, we sort of always tend to get surprised and shocked by difficulties and trials and suffering, even, even in ministry, even as pastors. It's amazing how we get through one and say, I'm glad that's over. And it's almost as if we, we would hope that it, another one wouldn't come, but we ought to live expectantly of suffering. It's part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian, part and parcel of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Because we are identified with Christ, because we are in Christ, we not only share in his sufferings, but we will suffer in some ways as he did. Don't be surprised by them. Be ready for them. Be on your knees 
praying and regularly going to the Lord saying, Lord, even today there will likely be some trials. Maybe not trials from the outside. Maybe not trials from my friends. Maybe not trials from within my own family or marriage or my own children. But I know there are going to be trials that start from within my own heart. My own struggles, my own sins, my own shortcomings. Don't be surprised by them. Don't be shocked by them when they come upon you to test you to try you, to prove you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Now, I want you to notice something, something that Peter does throughout this epistle, and we see it even in Paul. It's absolutely beautiful, but also very stressing. Because Peter, whenever he speaks of suffering, almost always speaks of joy. When he speaks of trials and the fiery trials, he almost always speaks of joy. And throughout this section that we have read, we even hear in verse 1 about the sufferings of Christ. Peter was a witness of these sufferings as well as a partaker of glory. You know, most Christians, when they consider our lives as Christians, as lives that... um, are lived with a certain amount of suffering, a certain amount of trial, and also a certain amount of joy. As one pastor makes the analogy, looking at two sets of train tracks. Imagine these two sets of train tracks as far as the eye can see, going out into the distance. Most Christians live their lives and have the disposition that we are either on one set of tracks or the other. Throughout our lives, throughout our months and weeks and days, that we tend to either live on one set of the tracks or on another set of the tracks. We either live on those tracks of of joy, or we live on that set of tracks of suffering. But the Christian life is not really lived like that. We're, We're not simply living in part in suffering, in part in joy, and from time to time we go from one track to another. But in reality, it's as if we're We're on both tracks at the same time, always throughout all of life. It is a life filled with both suffering, trials, if you really are aware of your own sin, if your eyes are really open to the sins and the miseries all around you, if you're really aware of your own need and your own hurt, your own pain, if you're really aware of the needs and the hurts and the pains and the struggles of those around you, not just in the world, but in the church and in your own home, you live a life of a certain amount of burden, a certain amount of sorrow, a certain amount of suffering. And it's not something you can just rid yourself of and, and, and completely free yourself of completely in this life. We are always about the business of casting our anxieties and casting our cares upon the Lord. That assumes that we have them. That assumes that we become anxious, that we become concerned, that we do struggle. The question is not do you have them, the question is what do you do with them? So we live the Christian life in the midst of suffering and we also live the Christian life with a certain Joy, a certain peace that passes all understanding, a joy and a peace that doesn't really make sense, that we can't really even describe at times. It's something so deep within our souls that we can barely even utter words to describe the peace that the Spirit gives us in Christ. And when you look at those two tracks out in the distance, they really do seem to become one. And we live our lives in this life of suffering and joy and There are none in many ways for whom that is more so the case 
as shepherds. You can almost look at pastors, especially pastors who've been serving for decades. And it's almost as if you could visibly see a burden on their backs. And it's not just the burden of of their own issues and their own shortcomings, their own sins that we struggle with daily. But it's almost as if you can visibly see the the burdens and the hurts and the pains of, of his present congregation that he serves, but also all the pains and all the burdens and all the hurts of all the years. You know what one of the greatest hurts that pastors feel? One of the greatest sadnesses of our lives? It's, it's not just those those that hurt us or those that complain against us or those that criticize us or those that, those that we've loved and cared for and prayed for and even maybe led to Christ and those that we've discipled for years, not those simply who, who leave and make an obscene gesture and walk out the door and say, forget you. I don't need you anymore. It's those who leave and never say goodbye. It's those who leave and never say thank you. And never give us the chance to say, I love you, and it's okay that you're leaving. As long as you're going to a good Bible-preaching, gospel-proclaiming church, it's okay. I love you, and I'll miss you. And I, I know it's good for your family, but those who leave and never say goodbye, all those burdens, all those sadnesses from the years, it's almost as if they, they pile up upon our shoulders, and we have to be the ones constantly on our knees unloading them upon Christ and not allowing the bitterness that the Satan so desperately wants to heap upon us, constantly giving those to Jesus and saying, Lord, these are your sheep, this is your flock. pastor's life, the shepherd's life, the elder's life is a life lived, as Newton said in his hymn, as a sorrowful of joy or a burden full of joy. And in one sense, that's true for every one of us, for every mom and dad, for every grandma and grandpa, for every Christian. Peter understood what this was like. Peter was a man with a disposition, a personality that was, was excitable and inflamed easily, it seems, and was, was a man full of ambition and passion. He was so quick to speak and so quick to defend the Lord and so quick to, to show his allegiance and his loyalty to the Lord and also so quick to fall, so quick to be weak, so quick to be faithless, so quick to be a denier. And Peter is writing from this past and from this history that he has had with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so listen to what he says. So, so considering all the fiery trials, considering all the suffering, considering what you all have experienced and what you are experiencing and what Peter himself was soon about to experience in his own death and likely upside down crucifixion, believing that he was not worthy to be crucified in the same way as the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter writes, so I exhort you, I charge you. I exhort the elders among you. I exhort these elders, and these elders, Peter assumes, were there. They were established in the churches, that there was a plurality of elders. Notice he doesn't just say, I exhort the elder among each of your churches, but the elders. It implies a plurality of elders, shepherds in each of these churches in that region. 
It also implies that these elders were qualified men who had been set apart and called out and examined and confirmed and ordained to the office of elder. Look with me just briefly at 1 Timothy chapter 3. We have referred constantly throughout our time together the last a uh, couple of days yesterday uh, regarding the qualifications for elder. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We need to look at these just in brief this morning. Paul, both here in 1 Timothy 3 and also in Titus chapter 1, gives to us these qualifications for the office of elder. I love how Paul begins. He says, this saying is trustworthy. What I'm about to tell you is trustworthy. You can count on it. The qualifications I'm about to give you are qualifications that are not simply a system of qualifications that generally describe men in pastoral ministry or those who are qualified to be elders, but each and every one of these qualifications combined with even the qualifications that Peter gives in 1 Peter, as we interpret Scripture with Scripture, Peter nor Paul are giving the entirety of the qualifications, but these are at least the qualifications Paul gives for the office of elder. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. He desires something that is right and good. That doesn't mean that men who desire the office of overseer ought to be opportunistic in their way of going about the church, trying to visibly demonstrate their good deeds before men, as Christ warns against in Matthew 6, 1, like the Pharisees did, but rather living the steady patient, honest, authentic life of the man that God has equipped him to be in the congregation because God is the one, as Mark said yesterday, God is the one who makes men elders. He is the one who gifts men to be elders. He gives them the necessary equipment. It's simply our job to identify them because they're already doing the work in the congregation and in their own home. It's right and good to desire this office. Therefore, an overseer, an episcopos, a bishop, if you will, one who supervises and oversees as a shepherd, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household well, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil." Overseers, elders, are first and foremost men. They're men called by God, and that's not something that changes with culture. God's Word doesn't change with culture. God's Word changes culture. God's Word speaks into culture. This is an office that is reserved exclusively for men. And this office is an office that is to be given to men that are already displaying these things. Yet at the same time, there's a sense in which those of us who have these qualifications and are called to the office of elder are also daily praying that we would retain these qualifications, that these qualifications would 
not just have been true of us, but that they would continue to be true of us, right? That we would continue to have these things, that we would continue to know these things and that they would be true of us, that we would continue to be the men that Paul describes as self-controlled and hospitable, respectable. Not a lover of money, not quarrelsome, gentle. You ever met those, those men that they, they seem to be just gentle, sweet shepherds face to face? But when you read them online, they are some of the most quarrelsome, argumentative, divisive, and seemingly mean spirited people you ever meet. You wonder do they have multiple personality disorder? Does something happen to them that when they get behind a computer screen? Man, I believe that this language of being quarrelsome and not being quarrelsome and being gentle and being self-controlled applies not just face-to-face, but also online, also at home, also with our children, also with our wives. It applies in all of life. This describes the man who is called to lead God's flock. I exhort the elders among you. And that implies that these elders are among them. This implies that the elders are in and among the sheep. Because elders, as shepherds, are not only shepherds, but we are also sheep. And in fact, in some ways, we are the most needy sheep. We are often some of the most messed up sheep. We are often the sheep with the most most miserable pasts. We are often the sheep who have the most difficult upbringings, some of the most undescribable pains in our lives. God often makes such sheep shepherds. And these shepherds, these elders, are among the sheep. They are walking among the sheep. They're not gurus. They're not just sitting up on a mountainside, up on a rock, and looking down on the sheep. They are men who are living in and among the sheep. They stink. You can always tell a real shepherd. You see... You see a weariness to his eyes. There's a certain grit about him because he's living in and among those that he's serving alongside and living among his sheep. And and that's messy and that's stinky and it's dirty and it's hard. You ever notice a, a man that seems way too polished to actually be living among real sheep? He likely isn't a shepherd. He's likely just a pulpiteer. And notice that in the New Testament, there's not really an office of pulpiteer. There's not even an office of preacher. The office is the office of shepherd. And shepherds are those who preach. And one of the primary roles of the shepherd is teaching, is preaching, is training up and discipling God's people day in and day out, Lord's day in and Lord's day out. But there's no office of preacher. Preachers are shepherds. Shepherds are those who preach. Those who simply give themselves to preaching are simply pulpiteers, not actually daily living shepherds. Be wary of those men that are so polished that they only give themselves to preaching and they don't know their sheep. They don't live among their sheep. They sort of travel in, they blow in, blow up, and blow out. No, God calls us to be shepherds. And we never graduate from being shepherds. We never get to a point in our lives where we say, okay, 
well, you know, I've been doing the hard work of pastoral ministry for so many years, um, and I have associate pastors and pastors who work alongside me. I've done this for long enough. Now it's time for me to sort of graduate. You ever sense that? I can now graduate. I don't do hospital visits anymore. I don't do weddings anymore. Uh, I don't do uh, funeral services anymore. I don't do counseling anymore. I don't deal with any church discipline cases anymore. I, I don't really visit people in their homes and see what's hurting them and how I can help them. I don't do any of those elder prayer meetings anymore. I've graduated from that. I have other guys who do that. You're not a shepherd. Get out of the church. You might be a real polished preacher. You might have all the bells and whistles and every word and every qualifier and every accent and you've got all the volumes down, you've got all the proper pauses down and, and you might have a huge podcast following. But if you're not a shepherd, you're not being faithful to what God has called you to be among his people. And it's hard and it doesn't get easier. Don't look for that time in your lives, men, where you say, ah, I, I know those men and they've got a house in the mountains. I got, I got nice cars. They spend most of their time at the golf course. Um, you know, their lives are perfect. A lot of men, I think, a lot of young men perhaps, they wouldn't say it. Nobody talks about this, but it's almost as if they sometimes go into seminary thinking, well, I know it's going to be hard. I know I'm going to have some hard years, but eventually my life's going to look like that, guys. All the honor, all the respect, all the money. Yeah, I'm not going into it for money. I'm not going into it for shameful or sordid gain. I'm not a lover of money, but I know my life's going to look like his someday. Real polished. Everything I need, the respect of the world and all the fame and honor that comes with being a faithful pastor. Peter says he's a fellow elder, not a pope. I love Peter's humility here. I'm a fellow elder among you. Notice that in the New Testament, the word elder in 1 Peter 5 the word, the word elder is only applied to a particular apostle in the singular, as John applies it to himself and uses it in the singular as an elder. Everywhere else in the New Testament, it is spoken of in the plural as elders. Peter's a fellow elder this morning. I was down at the uh, border restaurant. Any of you been down there? It's a greasy spoon hole in the wall, which are my favorite types of restaurants. I'm about a, I'm about a, I'm about a quarter to a third redneck, and so I like those sorts of places. Um, and, uh, and I walked in, and I was there yesterday morning, and the lady remembered me because I had one of those blue mugs that say go, which I love. And she refilled my coffee again. And, and as I was finishing my meal, uh, a fellow came in, sat behind me with a collar. So I realized he's either Anglican or Roman Catholic. Now, there was an off chance that he was from Scotland and one of the Scottish ministers, but their colors are a little bit different colored. And I turned around as I finished my eggs and ham and grits, and I turned around and I said, I said, are you? At first I said, I said, let me put all my cards on the table here. I said, I am a Presbyterian minister, and uh, I have a question. Would you mind? And he said, no, not at all. I said, are you Anglican or are you Roman Catholic, and he said, I'm Catholic. 
I said, do you mind if I ask you a question? And I said, I'm preaching this morning at uh, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary down the street here. And uh, I'm preaching through 1 Peter chapter 5. And, and in that passage, Peter talks about being a fellow elder. And he uses the language of the role of the, of the elder, the role of the shepherd being an overseer, being a bishop, being an episkopos. I said, but how do you all, how do you all deal with that? How do you all explain that? And uh, it, was, it was very clear he had not really thought through this to the degree that I was asking him. I'm not even sure he was entirely aware of the passage itself. And I said, you know, Peter doesn't refer to himself in any high way. He's already established that he's an apostle at the outset. But here he seems to humble himself and bring himself to the level of every pastor, every elder, every shepherd in all the churches as a fellow elder. And he was honored to be asked and spent a great deal of time talking about their understanding and of the diocese and how the bishop is uh, of the diocese of Christ and, and that he as a priest serves in the shared diocese of that bishop over this region. And so in one sense, he's sharing in the diocese of Christ. And uh, he said it would take a lot longer to explain. And I think what he meant by that is that I'm speaking with a Bible as my soul and fallible authority for faith and life. And he had to explain to me how the tradition of the church had led him to that decision and that conclusion. I don't know. But I was just asking him, can you explain how Peter didn't call himself Pope? Calvin speaks of this and he says, this is as, as contrary as light from darkness. Peter does not lift himself up. He humbles himself and he realizes that he is a fellow elder among these elders. I'm a fellow elder among you and I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Notice that Peter doesn't say, I'm, I hope to be a partaker or one day I might be a partaker He's a partaker of that glory even now. Dearly beloved, we, we're not just waiting on this and with some sort of wishful thinking. We are partakers now of this glory. Shepherds, elders, every Christian, we are partakers even now of this glory that is going to be revealed. It's like Paul speaks in terms of the past tense that we are glorified in Romans chapter 8. We're not simply waiting on a glorification. We are. It's as good as done. We're as good as glorified. We are partakers now of the glory that is going to be revealed. And as Mark even prayed, and as we were singing, I was thinking perhaps today, and Mark said, may you come back today, Lord. That glory could be revealed even today. And then Peter gives them this charge to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Now, what does a shepherd do? Well, the shepherd feeds and tends and cares for the sheep. A shepherd is one who knows his sheep. A shepherd is one whose voice is recognized by the sheep. A shepherd is one who can call out to the sheep and the sheep recognize his voice and they follow him. Notice that a shepherd is not one who drives his sheep from behind. He's not yelling at them and screaming them and beating them with a whip. There's a gentleness about the shepherd that Jesus describes in John chapter 10, pointing ultimately to himself. 
Shepherd is one who leads his sheep from the beginning, who leads his sheep from the outset, who goes before them and he leads them into green pastures, green pastures that are so lush and full that they can get so full that they're able to lie down after eating. They're not constantly having to go around and find green pastures. They're so lush and so plentiful that they're able to eat and then lie down and rest. He's a shepherd who not only leads them to water, to running water, to a river, to a creek, to a brook, but he's one who actually goes upstream and dams that water up so that the water will not run so quickly and so that the water is still and so that the sheep who like still water can, can go down and, and drink that water at their leisure. A good shepherd is one who leads his sheep, protects his sheep, even the very signs of the club and the crook, the rod and the staff. The sheep can constantly see the shepherd amongst them with that club and crook in his hands, the one to rescue sheep from walking off a cliff or to pull another sheep away from another sheep with whom he's fighting, a club to to examine the sheep's wool and to see if there are any scabs or diseases or flies that have implanted themselves in the sheep's skin as they come out of the sheep gate. He can run his rod over their backs and inspect them thoroughly just as pastors do at the end of services at the back. We shake hands and we greet people, and it's amazing, amazing the sort of insights the Lord gives us into people's hearts and lives by just shaking their hands and saying, how are you? The good shepherd is one who gives himself for the sheep and lays his life down for the sheep, who's willing to live a sacrificial life for his sheep, just as all of us men are called to love our wives as Christ loved the church and give ourselves to them, not just being willing to die for them, not just being willing to take a bullet for them or run in front of a moving train for them, but willing to give our lives and to live for them each and every day of our lives, to live sacrificially for our wives every day, to give ourselves to them. Jesus didn't just come and die for us. He came and he lived for us. He lived a life of service, not a life to be served, but a life of service, giving his life a ransom for many. This is what shepherds do. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And notice, Peter doesn't say, shepherd your flock. Shepherd God's flock. Our flocks don't belong to us. Now, we belong to them in the sense that they are our flocks and that we, they are our congregations, they are our churches, that we belong to them, but they are not our flocks and that they belong to us. We are stewards, not lords. It's God's flock. It's God's sheep. And there, there's something very tender about that term flock as Christ even speaks of his own disciples as my little flock. There's an endearing term in speaking of the flock of God. These are God's people. Just like your wife and your children don't ultimately belong to you, they don't ultimately belong to me, they belong to God. I'm entrusted with them for a time. They belong to the Lord, and I'm called to disciple them and to train them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord as I, in one sense, offer them up to God, as I offer my wife up to God. So is it your flock? They don't belong to you. And one of the things that I think can help us in this is 
that we would work out of our vocabularies and out of our way of speaking of our congregation or my church. You know, we get a little bit upset when people refer to uh, churches as, well, that's, that's so-and-so's church, or that's Mark Dever's church, or that's Thibidi Anyabwile's church, or that's H.B. Charles' church. No, that's Jesus' church that they serve as stewards, not lords, as those who've been entrusted with a people for a time to serve them, to build them up, to grow them up as disciples of Jesus Christ, not themselves. God's flock. So let us work in our vocabularies, not only speak of the congregation as the Lord's people whom I serve rather than my church, let us also work not to speak of the elders that we serve with as our elders. These aren't your elders. They're God's elders. We serve alongside them. Speak of those elders that you serve with as those elders you serve with, those elders you serve alongside, not your elders. They don't belong to you. They belong to the Lord. They belong to his people as the representatives of God's people. Peter is a fellow elder. He is one who understood that this is the flock of God, not his own flock. It's a flock of Jesus Christ, not his own. And this flock, again, is, a, is among us. We are amidst this flock. And then Peter, Peter says, this is the, the role you are to have as a shepherd, as an elder. You're to exercise oversight. You are to exercise a supervisory role in looking upon them. Now, there's more than one reason that most, what many people call platforms or stages, in our church we speak of it as a chancel, but there's a reason that the pulpits tend to be elevated, not simply so that people can see us and us them well, and I don't want to make too much of this, but there is a sense in which we need to understand that there is a role in which the pastor needs to have in looking upon everyone. In our congregation, in our sanctuary, I can look and see eye to eye the people in the very back of the sanctuary. They can see me and I can see them. And I can, in one sense, sort of examine them, how they're responding, if they're listening, if they're constantly whispering in the ears of of the one sitting beside them, if they're really paying attention. And there is a, a shepherding role even in the preaching as pastors are actively engaging with the flock of God among them and before them. But the main reason that pulpits are elevated is to show forth the authority of the Word of God You know, our authority that we have as elders is not an inherent authority. Our authority is not our own. Our authority is what we speak of in terms of a ministerial or a declarative authority. The authority is in the Word of God. And it's our job to faithfully proclaim that Word to God's people, to feed God's people with His Word, that God's people might not only think biblically, but that they might live biblically. That they might not just live biblically, but that they themselves might teach and disciple and proclaim and go biblically to train up and make disciples of all nations biblically so that people might not just learn about the things of Jesus, that they might not just be told about the things of Jesus, that they might not just be evangelized about Jesus, but that they might hear the gospel of Jesus that they might become disciples of Jesus, 
that they might be baptized into the name of Jesus, into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that they also might learn, not just learn all the things that Jesus taught, but that they might learn to observe, that they might learn to obey, that they might learn to guard and keep all that Jesus commanded. And that means means a way of life and it means a way of doing mission that is concerned not only with proclaiming the gospel but to see people come to Christ through the message of the gospel, that victorious announcement of what Jesus has done for his people and in believing it and in knowing it, being trained up as disciples of Jesus Christ. So Peter understood this and he lived his life like this and he understood what it was to be an overseer, to be an episcopos and to be a supervisor over the flock of God and that they were to do it not under compulsion. Oh, I love this. That we're to be elders and shepherds not under compulsion, not not really in duress, not, not because we have to. The difficulty here is that if every pastor and every elder, really in, 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 in most senses every one who serves the church in any capacity, if we were to be honest, we would say there have been times I didn't want to do it. There are some of you who could be honest and say, last week I didn't want to do it. Last week... I felt like I was doing it under compulsion because I needed to do it. This is where my family is. This is where my job is. This is where my living is. I can't not do it. I have to do it, but I don't want to do it. Peter says not under compulsion, not out of a mere sense of duty. Duty exists. The Holy Spirit takes our duties. He doesn't erase them as duties. He takes our duties and he makes those duties delightful. He takes those duties and he makes them delightful duties. It still doesn't negate duty, a word that has fallen on hard times in our day. There's still duty and there's still responsibility, but with that duty, we are to do what Peter says, willingly. We are to do it because we want to do it, not because we have to do it, not because we got to do it, but because we want to do it. There's a certain delight that comes with serving the Lord and his people, not under compulsion. And dearly beloved, all I can say to you in offering you any sort of counsel the same sort of counsel I offer myself when, when the days and the weeks of shepherding is hard. When you want to quit, when you want to leave, is it the same one who called you to it? Is the same one to whom we have to run to ask for his help? to say, I can't bear this burden alone. In which he reminds us, you're never meant to. We always find that shepherding is hard and we want to quit when we're not actually going to the Lord as he takes those cares and anxieties and those burdens for us. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. God would have us delight in the responsibility and the great and the high calling of being an elder.
not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not for sordid gain. Now, Paul tells us we're not to be greedy or for money or not lovers of money. And I think most, again, men would say, I'm not a lover of money. I'm not greedy for money. I don't go about it for shameful gain or sordid gain or gain that is manipulative or dishonest gain. But something happens. If a man is in a ministry and he's comfortable and he's being properly taken care of by his people so that he is free from the cares uh, of the worldly vocations and, and cares of his family, he's able to take care of his family well. But something can happen sometimes where we, we don't go about it for shameful gain or for sordid gain. We don't really become lovers of money, but we really do want security. And we really do all want to be comfortable. Anyone who says otherwise is either lying or crazy. We all want to be comfortable because we, we all have heaven in our hearts and we all want to be secure and we want to have a certain living. We, we all want to have a better living. We all want to have better things. There's something in us that God has given us to want, things that are nice and good and right. That's not wrong. But we sometimes have to be the ones. We sometimes have to be the ones to say to the people who want to take care of us well, we sometimes have to be the ones to say, thank you, that's sufficient. Or even thank you, that's too much. Or thank you, but you're being too generous. We sometimes have to shepherd those elders among us in even helping them understand what we actually need and what we don't need to be comfortable and secure. Unlike the shepherds, the elders that God prophesies against in Ezekiel. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 34. Just briefly, we're going to look at this. It's very important that we consider this prophecy that God gives to Ezekiel against the elders who are living their lives for sordid gain, for shameful gain, not caring for the sheep of God. Ezekiel chapter 34 and verse 1, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel, you have been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered. Similar to what we read from Jesus in Matthew chapter 23. And Jesus says, they tie up the heavy burdens hard to bear and they lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Again, 34 and verse 5, so they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. When Jesus came, he said, Israel is like sheep without a shepherd. They're scattered. My sheep were scattered, verse 6. They wandered all over the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered all over the earth with none to search or seek for them. We as sheep, we all like sheep have gone astray. And we as the sheep of God, the flock of God, 
even though Christ has called us in and even though Christ has called to us and he's gathered us into his sheepfold and he's gathered us into his hand from which we cannot be plucked out, not only can we not be plucked out by the Satan or by the world, we can't even jump out. Even on days we feel like running away, the Lord keeps us in his hand. But we are, like sheep, prone to wander, aren't we? And we feel it down to the very depths of our being sometimes. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountain and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth with none to seek, search for them or seek them out. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed the sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding of the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. And then, in a most glorious and beautiful way, the Lord describes how he will rescue his sheep, how he will seek out his own sheep. Though they were scattered, he will rescue them from all places in verse 12. He will bring them out from all peoples and gather them from all countries, every tribe, tongue, and nation. He'll gather them. In verse 14, he's going to be the one to take responsibility into his own hands and feed his sheep with good pasture in the best places. Verse 15, I myself will be the shepherd of the sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost. In verse 16, as for you, my flock, Lord says in verse 17, thus says the Lord God, behold, I judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats. Is it not enough for you? to feed on the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pasture and to drink of clear water that you must muddy the rest of the water with your feet and must my sheep eat with what you have trodden with your feet and drink what you've muddied with your feet therefore thus says the Lord God to them behold I, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep and because you push the side the shoulder and thrust all the weak with your horns till you have scattered them abroad I will rescue my flock They shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep. He's speaking there in judging between sheep and sheep. He's saying, I'm going to judge between you, sheep, who are the shepherds, and the true sheep. I'm going to judge between you. I'm going to set apart those sheep from the goats. And I will set them up over them, one shepherd, my servant David. And he shall feed them, and he shall feed them, and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. You know, it's interesting about sheep and goats. Goats look quite different from sheep. Goats are are thinner, not as fat. They look far different from sheep, but... Have you ever been to certain islands, especially in Scotland and parts of the world where there are sheep who are undernourished, who don't have good pasture, who have not been well fed? You notice something about those sheep. They're scrawny. They're thin. Almost to a point where some of them look like goats. Sheep that are not well fed and sheep that are not well nourished, sheep that are not well instructed and well cared for, sheep that do not have the proper nutrients that they need to not only be the sheep that God made them to be, to have all the 
uses that God intended from sheep, but to look like the sheep that they're called to look like, and they need to look like to be used for all the ways that God intended, they have to be well-fed. And if they're not well-fed, over time, they're going to look an awful lot like goats. And you shepherds who are not about the business of feeding yourselves, you shepherds who are about the business of not looking deeply into the Word of God, not just in a perfunctory lip service way to do your homework for your sermon, but if you're not feeding yourself on the Word of God and in communion with the Lord and prayer on your knees, you will become, you'll come to look like a, sh- a goat yourself. And the Lord says, I'll rescue them. I'll judge between them. I'll discern the true sheep from those who are never sheep to begin with. Peter writes in verse 3, not domineering over those in your charge, not lording it over them, not, not being this little ruler that you've set yourself up as in this little kingdom or this little fiefdom. Men, the church doesn't belong to us. The sheep of God don't belong to us. They're God's flock. They're God's people. It's God's congregation. And we're not to lord it over them. We're not to act as lords over them. We're to act as sheep among them. You know, this all sounds fine and well right now. It sounds good to say, okay, this is right. I know I'm I'm called to, to be a shepherd, and I know that as a shepherd, I'm also a sheep among the flock of God. And, and we like that until other sheep treat us like sheep. And that's probably the most difficult thing about being a pastor, is that we're friends in real life, living life together in community, not according to just the way we want that fits our schedule and that perfectly conforms to what's most convenient for us, but living in real community with real people. We're not called to set up our own fiefdoms, our own kingdoms. We're called to constantly humble ourselves and get over ourselves and quit platform building and quit self-kingdom building and quit opportunistically building our own name for ourselves, but rather constantly humble ourselves among God's people, not lording it over them, not domineering over them. Who is the one who is to dominate? Who is the one who is to have all power and dominion? Peter says there in verse 11, it's Jesus Christ. To him be the dominion forever and ever. To him be the power. We are not lords. We are not to hold it over people, but we are to be examples to the flock. That is, we are to live in such a way among the flock that they can actually see us as an example, not just from the pulpit, not just from the platform, not just up on top of the mountain so they can look at us and say, oh, look how nice he looks up there. Look how shiny and polished he looks up there. No, they're able to see us in and among them living a real life, and that looks like a life of daily repentance. You know, pastors, we are to lead by example, and that is that we are to lead by a fruit-bearing life, striving always to be holy, even as Robert Murray McShane spoke of his own holiness as as one of his people's greatest needs, not so that people would draw their eyes to him ultimately, but that they would see in him an example of holiness because typically the people of God do not rise higher and they they don't grow beyond typically the holiness of those shepherds that are leading them. McShane, even in his young years, knew that. 
But he knew ultimately it was only in that and serving as that example to the flock that he would have the voice, the trust to be able to say to his people, my holiness is not inherent. My holiness comes from Christ. Look to him. Keep your eyes fixed on him, not on me. But we are to be examples among the flock. But that looks not only like holy living, it also looks like repentant living. As Luther in his first theses of his 95 said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ called us to repent, he willed that the entire life of the believer be one of repentance. And pastors, the reality of it is, in some ways, in some ways, we are the chief sinners among our congregations, and that means we're called to be the chief repenters. And not in some falsely modest way to sort of parade our sins so that we can act like we're repented, but living a truly repentant open, forthright, and even vulnerable life before our people so that they're not looking to us ultimately, but they're looking to Christ. And finally, when the chief shepherd appears, what does that imply? It implies that he's the chief shepherd, he's the great shepherd, he is the good shepherd, we are his under-shepherds. When the chief shepherd appears, when he comes physically, when he appears again and he will descend just as he went up into heaven in a visible way, we will see him descending. When the chief shepherd appears on that final day, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. It's a crown that Jesus gives to us as his under-shepherd. It's a crown that doesn't fade away. It's a crown that doesn't go away. It's a crown that remains with us. It's a leaf that does not wither and a grass does not fade. Jesus gives us this as a motivation. He gives us rewards as a motivation for our lives ultimately pointing to himself as our chief and ultimate reward. The other day as I was flying in here, um, I was sitting next to an African-American gentleman, and we started talking, and he, uh, he's the captain of a, a fire station in Orange County, and we were talking about what we do, and wonderful man, uh, I think he's a Christian, uh, claimed to be a Christian, seemed to know a lot about the Bible, and seemed to love the Lord, and And when he asked me what I did, I said, well, I'm a pastor. And he had a way of saying this. It was just so beautiful. He said, well, that's, that's the most selfless job in the world. And I didn't answer him right away. I looked at him and I said, finally, I said, well, it ought to be. And then he said, well, it is if you're doing it for the right reason." Gentlemen, are we serving the Lord in our ministries? Are we serving the Lord for the right reasons? Are we serving the Lord to get famous? Are we serving the Lord to get honor and respect and money? Are we serving the Lord because we want an easy life? Are we serving the Lord 
for his glory and not our own. Even Jesus himself came to serve, to seek and to save the lost sheep. Even Jesus came and he lived a life of sacrifice for us. He demonstrated what it was to be the selfless shepherd, doing it for the right reasons, not for his own fame, not for his own temporal glory, but for his own eternal glory, for the glory of our triune God. He did it and he lived this life and he sacrificed himself for us to give us his righteousness, to take our sin and to nail it to the cross so that we would bear it no more. And to get us on our knees at the foot of the cross, looking to him, dwelling with him, repenting before him, and living joyfully in him as we are united to him and he is united to us, saying, don't have a misappropriate eschatology. Don't set your eyes on the things of this world. Don't live by sight, live by faith. Trust the Lord and look to him and look to his future coming and his future appearing. Don't look for the crowns that men give you that fade away in this life, the applause of men and being liked by everybody and all the comforts and securities that this world can give you. Quit focusing on those things and look to Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of your faith. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, as hard as it is to say sometimes, We thank you, Lord, for calling us to the task of serving your flock as shepherds. Lord, help us. Help us by keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ as we try to help those that we serve to fix their eyes on Jesus Christ, not for our glory, not for our kingdom or our own names, but for the glory and the name above all names, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.